in front of you, uh, there's, there are some black Bibles, and if you open up uh, and find the text, you can see where we're headed this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, page 1192, I think it is. If you have your own uh, Bible, I encourage you to turn there as well. I'm going to read this for us and then introduce uh, our speaker this morning. So page 1191 is where it begins on the bottom there. Let's, uh, let's read this now as we look into God's word together from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 to 6. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is the word of God. Well, this morning, if you uh, open up your bulletin, the message notes where you can take some, uh, jot some things down, you'll see Jared McLean's bio on the bottom. That's just a little snippet of somebody's life, of course, and you can kind of glance at that, too. We met each other the first time we met. Uh, I was reminding him of that. He didn't remember it, but I'm sure we did at uh, one of our sister churches, New City in, in Norwood. Uh, we were part of a network there, um, met for the first time, and then another time at a conference, a Mosaics Cincy conference that we were sponsoring as a network. Jared and I caught up there too, and I said, let's just get together and, and talk a little bit more. Uh, I was interested in learning, hearing more about his story. So we met in northern Kentucky. He was coming back from a, a, a trip and coming through the airport. So we spent, it felt, it felt like a good hour plus, hour and a half something, and it just went by like a couple of seconds. And I said, Jared, would love to have you come and preach someday at Redeemer, and he uh, willingly agreed to do that, so he put it on the, on the calendar. Jared is a student now at Reformed Theological Seminary, Orlando, the Orlando campus, mostly virtual, I guess, kind of they do a little different model at Tate's Creek uh, Presbyterian Church in Lexington, where he attends. He's involved in a church plant there as well, and just took over a Young Life uh, region, or area director-ish um, uh, in, in Lexington as, as well. Uh, and Jared, too, and this, this isn't down here, and uh, it doesn't, I know it doesn't define him, but he's uh, certainly been involved in athletics. He was a quarterback for Eastern Kentucky University and had a great, great deal of, uh, of success playing, playing sports there, too. So I gave him a couple pointers last night. He spent the night with us, a little tighter spiral now that he's got which I think he benefited from greatly, no doubt. But uh, all that to say, I said, Jared, just come and, uh, you know, give, uh, preach to us. Jared just took a preaching class, and um, so he's, he's eager to exercise his skills now, and we're, um, I know we're a gracious congregation. This will go down in history. I guarantee it. It's the first uh, message that Jared has preached in church. I know you probably didn't want me to say that, but listen. That, that makes, that, that, that makes, that's why you should feel freedom now, because if, if things go south, which they won't, then we'll, everybody's going to be very, very generous about it. So I, thought, I felt like it needed to be shared. All right, any more? Uh, that's, that's enough, too. So Jared McLean, come and bless us with God's word. Thank you for joining us. Good. Okay, how does this work? 
Okay. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, well, I want to rush to gratitude for Mark and his family for their hospitality, inviting me up to North Cincy, staying in their home. Um, great conversation. And then I want to rush to gratitude for this church, inviting me to come speak to them as well. So thank you so much. I am honored and grateful to be here. Um, and now, if you would, um, I'm going to read the text again, and then I'm going to pray for our time and ask for the Spirit to come down and work in our hearts, and then we will dig in into our passage. Is that all right with you all? Okay. Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, and, and I'm reading from the ESV version. Um, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For who would, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let me pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who um, by his life and death have granted us freedom and in, in, in life through him. So now, Lord, we um, have your spirit, and we ask for your spirit now to fall afresh upon this room as the preaching of your word begins. I pray that this word would... Um, activate and, and confirm and, and correct um, our spirits and lives now. Um, your word is, tr is truth, and we know that by it you guide and direct our ways. And so um, with that being said, Lord, we ask again for your spirit. I ask that you give me your spirit to speak the truth and nothing but the truth, O Lord. Um, would you be with me as I stand firmly upon your word um, and help me in this endeavor? In your heavenly name, amen. So, um, it was 2016, I was sitting in a small library room at, the universe, at Eastern Kentucky University. Um, I was 19 years old, sophomore in college, in a Bible study, and I was engaging in Romans. We were going through Romans 3, and um, it was the first time in my life I had, I had ever heard the true and unadulterated gospel. It was the first time that the gospel was presented in such a way that it was attractive. It made me curious. It made me wonder, well, could this thing called Christianity really be true? Can I really believe in this God that the Bible was trying to argue for? Um, I grew up in a, in a Christian culture. My family is Jamaican. Um, we, my grandmother went to a small Jamaican Pentecostal church, and so the spirit was, was always there. Um, and any time I was with my grandmother, I was always perched right here on the front row in church, listening to the word. Um, I didn't know what I was hearing. At times, I didn't agree. But lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, my grandmother um, essentially really started discipling me from the time I could probably understand life in general. Um, she is clearly and, and, and most vividly um, the spiritual matriarch of our family. Um, because of her, the faith has been passed down. Went to my mother, and now it's gone on to me. Um, and I pray the same for my kids one day. So we, what, what we have here is, you know, my grandmother would tell me these things about God. 
I get fast forward, I get to college, and I'm in this Bible study, and I'm hearing these things about God, and there's two options here. It's 50-50. I could believe in this idea of God. I'm hearing these things, I'm hearing these new truths, and I could believe it. But then on the other hand, the, the perception or the concept of God I have in my mind is, this is a God that I have to please. This is a God that if I don't do X, Y, and Z, this God will be angry with me. It was sort of like a coach or a teacher. They give you these instructions, they tell you to do this, and then when you don't do it, you get disciplined. Or when you don't do it, they get angry. You know, we, we, you know many of us have, have had this idea of God. Many, many of us have thought he's that um, maniac coach who is just there to, you know, yell, show his expression, and, and beat down the, the player. Or the teacher that's always getting on to you, just nagging in your ear about your homework or an assignment. Or that parent that is just, there's nothing you can do right in that parent's eyes. I had that perception. I, that was what I thought. And for some of you this morning, that may be your very perception or concept right now, presently. You know, if that is true about God, and that is what you believe about God, all the things that I just said, then I don't blame you for not believing him. You know, I wouldn't believe in a God that was demanding, sociopath, maniac, dictator, just kind of puppeteer. He's up there in heaven puppeteering what's going on in earth, disconnected from reality and humanity, very far. That doesn't seem attractive. That doesn't seem like something or someone that I would want to love or commit my life to. Unfortunately, this is the prevailing thought in our culture. And unfortunately, sometimes this is the prevailing thought in our churches. We believe that God is this distant, abstract, theorized, theoretical being that doesn't really deal with the present realities of humanity now. Well, if God is true, why is my situation the way it is? If God is real, why are people hurting? Well, folks, what I'm here to tell you this morning, that that's just quite frankly not true. Um, what we will see in our passage is the exact opposite. Number one, God is near and close and intimate. And number two, God can and will or can be pleased with you. It's a poss- that's a reality. You can please God. And I think Enoch, what we'll see in our text here, would demonstrate that for us. And so if I could give one kind of overarching thought of our text, it would be um, only authentic faith pleases the God of heaven and earth. Authentic faith pleases our Father in heaven. Now, I'm sure the question that naturally comes to mind now is, well, number one, what is authentic faith? What is that? What does that mean? And, and how is that so? How does faith please our God in heaven? Well, I'm glad you asked, and so is the Hebrew writer. Um, for the next few moments, I want us to consider three marks or characteristics of of Enoch's life that exemplifies this prevailing truth. Authentic faith really does please our Creator. So first, authentic faith believes in the existence of God. Secondly, 
Authentic faith pursues the things of God. And thirdly and lastly, our authentic faith guarantees that we do have an ultimate reward waiting on us. Okay? So authentic faith believes, it pursues, and it trusts that there is a reward, an ultimate reward waiting for us. So let's look at the first mark, belief in the existence of God. Verse 6, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. The Hebrew writer could not be any more clear. This is very direct. That's to the point. If you're going to have faith, you got to come to some type of understanding that God really does exist. Basics right there, okay? One cannot have faith in something that he or she just doesn't really think is real. You, it's impossible. You can't believe in something that you have no categorical uh, concept of. Don't you love it when verses in Scripture are just very clear and straight to the point? I do. Um, I also love it when the Bible gives us paradigms or examples of past people um, that have walked with God, that have followed the steps of Jesus. And that's what the life of Enoch is for for us today, a blueprint, a model of what it looks like to have real, authentic faith. Enoch believed in God's existence. It wasn't myth to him. It was fact. He had to believe in the very actuality of God in order to have faith in God, right? That seems like the logic going on. You believe in something. You think that he's real. And then from that point on, it's okay, well, if he's real, then maybe I can't trust him. That's what's happening here. We could come to this conclusion because the text tells us that it was by faith that Enoch was taken up into the presence of God. Well, if one doesn't believe in the existence, then one cannot even fathom being in the presence of God himself, right? For many of us, this is a difficult thing to do. So in in America, we have technology. We have money, science, philosophy, academia, what have you. We've got a bevy of things taking our, captivating our minds, telling us, what, telling us what truth is, what's not true, what's real, what's not real. From the time we were born into this Western postmodern culture, we have been inundated with theories, ideologies, truths on the non-existence of God. In grade school, college, we are taught that philosophy, science created the world that we live and dwell in. The world came to be via Two objects that came out of nowhere and then somehow created their own energy to collide with one another to create everything. To me, that seems, I I would need far more faith to believe in that than not to believe that God spoke the world into existence. And then on the other hand, you have humanity which came to be via evolution in perfect chance, so to speak. On top of that, you have all the other religions and gods clamoring, clamoring for the attention of us, the people in this world. Our culture welcomes and preserves the right for anyone to believe in anything that they want to. See, the, see, the same thing was going on in Enoch's day. Creation and humanity had chosen other gods. They had began to refute the authority of God because they no longer believe in his very existence. Enoch's life was sandwiched between the fall of Adam and Eve 
Then you've got Enoch's life. And then you've got the Tower of Babel scenario where man literally tried to climb up to heaven and and replace God. They thought, hey, I think we got this. I think we can figure this out. God, step aside. Let me me step in and, and kind of run the show for a little bit. Man had become evil, corrupt. Their wickedness was great. Idolatry was the new religion. Disobedience to God's word and inevitably his authority became the new trend. Man and woman became his and, all, his and her own God, or at least they attempted to do so. Hence, like I said before, the Tower of Babel incident. Well, what's interesting is that in 2018, in, in our present reality now, things don't seem to be that much different. We may not build structures to get to heaven, but we have attempted to replace God with technology, materialism, enlightened intellectualism. Romans 1 tells us that humans suppress the truth. We, ex- we have exchanged the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Colossians 2.8 says that, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. The world tells us that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Instead, it says that truth is whatever you want it to be. You come up with truth. That's your truth. Can't nobody argue with that. If that's what you want to believe, that's you. Therefore, God can be whatever we want him to be or not to be. Beloved, this is unequivocally wrong. There is absolute truth, and it is found in the scriptures. The Bible is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. There is, excuse me, philosophy and intellect begin and end with God. Hence why he is the creator of all things. Not only has he created creation, the things that we see, but without God, there is no philosophy or wisdom or knowledge. He, because he is real, we have the ability to even attain such things. He created it. It begins and ends. It starts with our creator. So because of that, you and I really can believe in the existence of God. When Enoch believed in God's existence, he believed in the existence of the creator of heaven and earth. He believed in a God who simply spoke the world into existence. Enoch came to an understanding that without the God of his ancestors, life as you and I know it would not be. And so how do we know this? Well, Genesis 1-1 purely tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God goes on to tell Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Now, go and tell the people that I am sent you. That's declarative. God is saying, I am. Meaning, there, there, there isn't anything without me. I am the very being, the very idea of existence. If there wasn't a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then there would be no life as we know it today. But 
you know, if that isn't enough evidence for you, then we can look at our, the person of Jesus Christ. God said, well, all right, you don't believe that? Well, let me come down on heaven, put on some skin and some clothes, and show you that I'm a real thing. I'm a real person. He walked in our shoes. He talked our language. He felt the things that we felt to prove his existence. But more than that, his authority. And this is a thing that Enoch believed in. Now, Enoch doesn't stop there. What we believe about God informs the way we relate to and with God. So because Enoch believed, he pursued and sought out his creator. Which leads me to my second point. Authentic faith pursues the things of God. So now we see Enoch's belief turning into devotion. Right? Our, our series here is living by faith. Well, okay, Enoch has come to faith. Well, now that faith has now moved him to action. Okay? He's like, all right. Because of w- what I know to be true about God, this moves me to pursue him. But not only pursue him, the things of him. So what is that? What is that? What does that look like? In Genesis 5:22 through 24, we have the really the only exegesis of Enoch's life. We have an episode, a, a, a snapshot of who, what type of man he was. He was correct, characterized as a man who walked with God. In other words, he was a man who was in close, intimate relationship with his great maker. Enoch not only believed, but he humbly obeyed and sincerely loved his God. His understanding of who God is dramatically affects how he lived in his life. The same is true for us. If we believe certain things about the God of the Bible, then that's going to really affect the way we live our lives in light of that belief, that truth. Enoch lived in such a way that was pleasing unto God. Now, now notice I didn't say perfect. This is very key. Enoch lived a pleasing life to God, not a perfect life. There's a stark difference. No one under the sun can or ever live a perfect life. Perfection is never disobeying. Perfection is what Christ has already accomplished for us through his body. Through his life and death, perfection has been given. Perfection is never getting angry with your kids or your spouse. Perfection is always doing the right thing at the right time, all the time. Perfection doesn't lie, cheat, or steal, nor does it hurt, betray, marginalize, judge, discriminate. Perfection doesn't do those things. And, I'm, and, I, and I know none of us can proclaim to be perfect. No one can claim to be perfect. No one can claim to be sinless. Paul again tells us in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all on the same playing field. Your money don't matter. Your job don't matter. How many kids you got don't matter. Where you live don't matter. In the eyes of the Lord, right there on the bottom of the totem pole, sinful. It's a stark reality. Perfection is impossible on this side of heaven. You do not have what it takes to be perfect before God. 
No one can offer themselves acceptable in the sight of God apart from Christ's blood. That's why authentic faith alone gives us the perfection required to be reconciled to our God. Perfection cannot be earned. It must be given. It comes from outside of ourselves. See, Enoch's belief in God was was more than cognitive understanding. It was full-grown trust in God's words and promises. Enoch's life, Enoch believed God. He had faith in God, and his life backed it up. His perfection was given to him through Christ. He didn't earn it. He didn't volunteer enough time for it. He didn't give enough money for it. It was given to him. As the church of Jesus Christ, Christians are called to reflect that very grace that has been bestowed upon them in word and deed. That means how we talk, how we live matters to our Lord. God isn't asking for you to be perfect and blameless. blameless. You, already are, you already are in Christ. Christ has declared that for you. The moment I say, Lord, I am a sinner, and I am in need of deep, deep, desperate grace. The moment that happens, and you believe that, genuine faith, God looks at you and says, Beloved, my perfect and blameless son or daughter, Christ's record is now on your life. Where you've been, where you're going, where you are now, does not, does not do anything to your salvation. He has promised to see you through to the end. And now that doesn't let us off the hook. There's something to be done in the present, and that's what we're seeing in Enoch's life. God isn't asking you to be perfect, but what he does do is he's calling you to a different standard, a godly standard. Authentic faith seeks to become more like Jesus, his son, Okay, It gives us a deep desire to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Jesus didn't only come to forgive sinners through his body. He also came to, to fulfill the will of the Father, which was to obey and adhere to his Father's word. Jesus not only died the death none of us could, he lived a life that no one can either. See, that's the great, great paradox of Christianity. God does all the work. He does. He does the same. He's the one that pulls you up out of the mud. But then when when you're up out of the mud, he's saying, okay, my child, I've called you to something much, much greater than you could ever imagine. And that's going to take some responsibility. Living by faith, right? It's an active word. It's an active religion. Your living doesn't save you. Your faith saves you. Your faith just informs your living. When Christ comes into your life and his spirit dwells and resides in you, something radically has just happened. Something has radically changed in your life. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you believe and proclaim Christ crucified, then your life is no longer yours. It's Christ, and it means that he reigns supreme. supreme. 
Now, remember when I mentioned earlier that I love it when the Bible gives us examples or, or, or paradigms, models of the Christian life. Well, one of my favorite examples are the Israelites. Love the Old Testament. I love the story of Israel. I think, I, I think when we look closely at what they were doing, um, it, it, it really does give us a blueprint. We are, the, the church is the new Israel. And because of that, there are some things that we're called to do. So let's see what the Israelites were called to do. The Israelites were God's chosen people who he, who he saved from Egypt. He brought them out of bondage, okay? Not them, he did. Established their identity, gave them a land, and then he gave them instructions on how to live in that land. Now, one could not become an Israelite if one did not have faith. So the idea that faith was not present in the Old Testament, not true. Abraham believed, and it was a credit to him as righteous. Okay? Noah, as you'll see next week, believed, and then he obeyed. But Noah presumed God's favor with faith. The idea of faith has always been with God. And it's the same way that we see with the Israelites. So that means that if anyone from anywhere at any time came to faith in the God of Israel, then they were Israelites. They were entered into the household of God. The instructions that he gave him were twofold. He said, okay, you're my people, and I'm your God, Now, here's what I'm calling you to. The first was worship and adoration for the one and true living God. The second was love for thy neighbor. It's quite interesting. The whole reason God had saved Israel in the first place was so that they could be a people to show off his glory. And they were to do that by the way they worshipped and how they treated folks. The prophet Micah says, re- received a, Lord, a word from the Lord, and he told the Israelites and said, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The same thing that Micah was saying to the Israelites is the same thing that he's saying to the church of Jesus Christ today. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. When Jesus came on the scene, he proclaimed the same message. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 through 40. You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and, and the prophets. So church, we are called to the same mandate that the Israelites were called to. The entire Bible is saying the same thing. Love your God and love his people. There are new, there's nothing around it. If, if you are under the banner of Christ, if Christ is your God and king, then you are called to love him with everything you've got, and you are called to love his people. Why? Because every single one of us are made in the image of their creator. That's powerful. What I do to my neighbor is what I'm doing to my maker. (laughs) Authentic faith seeks the Lord through word, prayer, and sacraments. Okay? So that's how we love God. Vertically, we're called to vertically be reconciled to our Father, and that comes with some, some things to do. We seek him through word and prayer. 
I saw on the, the bulletin, we're going to take, take the sacraments. <laughs> there is nothing more beautiful than this moment. Just a side note, if, if you've ever struggled with assurance, if you've ever struggled with, man, does the Lord love me today? Did what I do lose the love of God? You look at those sacraments. Every time you take communion, that is your assurance. That is the tangible gospel. This is the tangible reflection of what Christ has done and what Christ has promised through his body and blood. Communion assures you of your salvation. God knew we would struggle with assurance, so he gave us a, something that we could touch, taste, and feel. When we take the sacraments, something spiritual is happening. And he's saying, beloved, this is what I've done for you. Believe and trust. All right, back to the sermon. Excuse me. Authentic faith trusts God through all situations and circumstances. It sings praises and of, sings songs of praise and thankfulness. We, we read scripture. We memorize scripture. We, we pray and we communicate to God through the spirit, through his spirit. That's what it means to love your God. We are devoted to him. We are, in, we are pursuing him. We are pursuing righteousness. We are pursuing the things of God. Because the more and more we do that, guess what happens? The more and more I lose less of Jerry McLean and I become more of Jesus Christ. God doesn't leave us off the hook. I love you. I've saved you. But I've called you to something great, meaning I need you. I need you to proclaim this, this gospel. I need you. I need your help to do this mission. He's invited us into something. Ultimately, no, God doesn't really need us, but he's extended that invitation. Authentic faith is so contagious that with it you ought to move towards others. Which leads me to the other side of faith, faithfulness to God. One side directs our relationship with him, okay? We're reconciled vertically. But then on the other, it directs the way we have relationships with those around us. Your faith ought to move you toward compassion, mercy, and grace. How you treat your neighbor directly correlates with how you view God. Every human being has, is an image bearer, meaning they were created in the likeness of God. And as I said before, what we do to them means that we're doing something to our Lord, especially to the downcast, especially to the poor, especially to the person that may not look like you, dress like you, talk like you, eat the things you eat, but you best believe that's your neighbor, and we're called to love them. We're called to, to meet their needs in the best way we can. It may not be money, it may not be service, but it could be time. It could be sitting down and just listening. Every human being, excuse me, pursuing righteousness is more than right living. It is also doing right by people. The church is not only triumphant because of Christ, but the church is militant. The church is now mobilized to move. We've got to move towards folks. And our message is clear. 
Christ crucified. It's the best thing people can hear. It's the best thing we've got. God, God was a blessing to us, just as he was a blessing to Israel. And what did he tell Israel to do? Now go be a blessing. And the way you're going to be a blessing is by, number one, living according to my word, an ethical witness. And then secondly, by living in a way that would be attractive and distinctive for the surrounding nations. Why? So they would know that you are my people and I am your God. So here in Mason, Church of Redeemer, God has said, I have saved you. I have blessed you. Now I want you to go proclaim that message to all these folks in this city. That's our mandate. I'm not saying that. That's just what the Lord, that's just what the Bible is saying. I'm just a messenger. He's calling us to that. Go and love my people. Faith in Christ moves us to love people where they are and not where they have been. We've all been somewhere. We all come from some, some bad things, some hard things. And that didn't stop that person from telling you about Jesus. So it ought not to stop you from telling someone else about Jesus. Enoch demonstrates this for us. He sought righteousness and justice to please his Father in heaven. And the same is true for us. The way we live, the way we treat people, it, it, it does matter. It matters. And God is pleased when his people are doing the things of him. Enoch believed, he desired, and then he pursued the things of the Lord in spite of his imperfection. Just because you've done, done some things before don't mean you can't love people. We're imperfect. On this side of heaven, we'll never be perfect, but that does not give us the grounds or the excuse not to be obedient. It doesn't. For a portion of my Christian life, I thought it was impossible to please God. I came across a book by Kevin DeYoung called The Hole in Our Holiness. I saw it in your library. They're one of the greatest books I've ever read because it gave, it, it, it really shows that holiness is attainable, meaning I can live a life in such a way that is pleasing to my father. It's not impossible. It, it, it's not a theoretical, well, I'm a, I'm a human, I'm sinful, there's nothing I really can do, so let me just believe in God and just hope that, you know, I'm in heaven when, when it's all said and done. That's not true. The, the, living, the, the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 is about men who believe, and then they moved. They, they believed in something, and that belief directed and, and informed and, and guided the way they lived their lives. Why? Because if, if you believe in God, if you believe his word to be true, to be absolute, and you trust it, then you're going to do the things it says, right? The same is for us today. The same mandate that we are given in the church of Christ today is the same mandate that from Genesis to Revelation those folks were given. The same God of then is the same God of now. And he's, what he expected then is what he's expecting now. But we have his spirit. He doesn't leave us to do this on our own. He knows we can't do it apart from him. So he ain't saying to live holy and just figure it out. He's saying, no, I'm going to give you my spirit. 
to lead you and guide you, to correct and affirm, to trust when you may not know what to do. I'm going to give you help. And every time you mess up, because I know you will, that's why I sent my son, I'm going to remind you of my grace. And I'm going to keep on reminding you of my grace. Lastly, my last point, we see that authentic faith assures us of an ultimate reward. Our passage ends saying, the Lord rewards those who seek him. What the Hebrew author is saying is that on that day, capital D, when the Lord is gallivanting out of the sky down to earth with the past saints of past and present, when he's, when he's down, when he comes back on that glorious day, and he calls his people home, the Lord, faith in Christ, has assured you that you will be joining him in that day. On that day, those who have been washed and renewed by the blood of Christ through faith can be assured that their ultimate inheritance resides in heaven. Nothing or no one can take that from you. Your faith assures you of that. Your faith assures you that God will be faithful. He, he, he cannot be unfaithful. It's against his very nature, against his very, very character. When, when God made that covenant with Abraham and walked through the fire with those pieces, he said, if, if, I don't, if my word does not come, not come back true, I would have to destroy my own self. Well, that's kind of a conundrum because God can't destroy his own self because he can't lie. I mean, it's just a win-win. So there we go. But that's true. Your faith assures you of the inheritance that's waiting on you. So what does that do for us now? It gives us hope. It gives us hope for the present. So when that stress or that issue or that problem, that family thing, that child, that coworker comes, Lord, I have hope. Because I know when this is done, all that I've ever worried about, all that I've ever stressed about, all that I've ever was concerned about will be no more. The pain, the tears, the anxiety will be all over because the Lord has preserved his people. He will preserve his people. God's word cannot come back void. He says what he's going to do. What he says is what will happen. And he's, you need proof? Flip through these pages and just read about his faithfulness. He provided a son for Abraham. Even in Abraham's disobedience, God still gave him grace. He saved David's life over and over and over. David messed up, and God still said, well, that was a man after my own heart. Peter rebuked Jesus three times. God still loved him, and Peter's right there in heaven with his father. The same is true for us. Therefore, church, as I conclude, 
Trust that your faith assures you of the inheritance stored up in you, stored up in heaven for you. Believe that God is real and that your faith in his son is the only thing good enough for him. You can please him. Your faith in his son has already pleased him. But until that day, until that time, God is saying, I, 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 need, I, need, I need some more people in my family. So remember, authentic faith must believe in the existence of God. It must pursue the things of God, meaning pursuing God and pursuing our neighbor. Treating folks with dignity and respect. Meeting people where they are. Devoting ourselves to prayer, worship. Reading the Bible. Bearing one another's pains and hurts. And then lastly, trusting and hoping that my faith really does assure me of what's to come. It's not only going to get me through, but it's going to see me to the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Most importantly, we thank you for your son who lived and died that death that none of us could ever or would ever do. And because of that, Lord, because of, for the ones that believe in the person and work of your son, Lord, they are secured, they are loved, and they will not be forgotten. So Christ, we ask that you would just work in our hearts, move us forward, continue to conform us more into the image of you, Teach us how to love you and love your people better. And most importantly, will we depend on your spirit in all that we do. So, Lord, we pray all those things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.